Would you turn, please, to the book of Acts, chapter 13? Acts 13. My thanks to all who have helped us uh, in worship this morning, from scripture readers to musicians and singers. We are so grateful that God has given us, um, given us people who will serve and help us to sing his praises and to hear his word. You'd agree with that, wouldn't you? Amen. Amen. I want to read to you a portion of our passage this morning. Our, our text is going to be verses 13 through 43 of Acts 13. But we're going to read right now, beginning at verse 26. So Acts 13, 26 is our beginning point. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of the salvation for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterance of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, They took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. John at verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you would not believe, even if one tells it to you. Will you pray with me? Father, you know... You know that I am inadequate. You know that we are inadequate. So I would ask you to do a miracle in our midst today. Open the hearts of people to hear you. Give, as the old Puritans would say, unction to the word going forth. Let the familiar parts of the story not bounce off of us but rather pierce our heart with your word and teach us your truth and let us bring you glory. That's our prayer. God, do mighty works. Comfort those who need comfort. Afflict those of us who are too comfortable. In all things, show your glory. Save souls, change hearts, glorify your name. And it's in your holy name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. A day like today is ready-made by God for deep thoughts, big thoughts. Resurrection Sunday, my friends, is the greatest of our holidays. This is the day that we celebrate what makes Christianity matter. Without the resurrection of Jesus, we have no faith. Without the resurrection of Jesus, we have no hope. But no event happens all to itself. 
In human history, events fall in a line. You know this. Small events lead to big ones. Major moments lead to small ones. And history has a starting point. And history has a goal to which it is moving. This morning, we'll take a few minutes to look at a passage that helps us to place the resurrection of Jesus, what we celebrate today. By the way, what we celebrate every Sunday, the reason the church meets on Sunday is because the Lord Jesus was found to be alive on the first day of the week. We want to put this in context. And in doing so, what we want to see is what is the faith all about? And we want to see where can we find our hope? And we want to be reminded of the danger of rejecting the gospel of God. And as we do all of this, we're going to find four points that you can write down if you want to write some things down that may help us respond rightly to this glorious truth. Look at your Bibles, Acts 13, starting at verse 13. Now, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hands said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. It had undoubtedly been a long journey for Paul and Barnabas. They were taking the message of Jesus into Asia Minor, and they had a very long way to travel. They crossed dangerous rivers. They struggled up steep mountain passes. They were certainly in danger at sea and in danger of robbers on land. You remember Paul talking about that, don't you? And many believe that Paul during this time fell very ill and had probably been dealing with that or the weaknesses associated with that when we read what we read for today. And Paul and Barnabas, the two evangelists, had also suffered a personal sad loss. John Mark had started the trip with them. But for whatever reason, he was unwilling to continue. Mark abandoned Paul and Barnabas, going home while the two older men pressed on. You all know how hard it is to press on when you're abandoned by people you thought you could rely on? Paul and Barnabas arrived at Antioch in Pisidia. By the way, that's not the same Antioch that sent them out as missionaries. But there in Antioch at the synagogue, they saw a very normal scene. Scripture was read. Prayers were prayed. The leaders of the synagogue were willing to allow these guests to speak. And that was normal. That was part of their culture. Paul was a former student of the famous Rabbi Gamaliel. He was, he was somebody everyone respected in the Jewish synagogue, and so it's no surprise that they would call on Paul. I would think, by the way, that many of you would be happy that we don't have that custom today. Go visit a new church and someone says, go ahead. But here Paul did stand up to speak. And Paul... Trained by Gamaliel, inspired by the Holy Spirit, delivered a glorious sermon on the focus and the direction of all human history. 
Again, can you imagine that be the sermon? I want to just tell you all of human history. Ready? Go. This is the first recorded sermon of Paul. Will we get what he says? This is the longest recorded sermon of Paul's in Scripture. But it's not going to take us long to look at what Paul said to see the importance, the tremendous significance of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. See, Paul spoke to the men of Israel. That was the Jews. He spoke to those who fear God. That was believing Gentiles. Which means Paul's message is for you and for me, Jew, Gentile, whatever color or shade you are. God wants you to hear this. So are you ready? First point this morning. God promised a Savior. I wish I could give you a new point, but it's what the text says. God promised a Savior. 16, the end of it. Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted army led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. There are some stories everybody knows. Right? There's some things that if someone even makes reference, you know it. When Abraham Lincoln began the Gettysburg Address with the statement, Four score and seven years ago our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation. Do you know that everyone who heard Lincoln say that line knew what he was talking about? In fact, I would guess that even you and I, a century and a half after Abraham Lincoln, know what he was talking about. What was Lincoln pointing to that happened four score and seven years before the Gettysburg Address? It was the revolution. It was the founding of a new nation, 1776. That was history that everybody on that field knew. Well, in much the same way, Paul opens this sermon with a piece of history that every single person in that synagogue would have known. It's the history of the Old Testament. It's the story of God's working in humanity, especially in and through Israel. Paul began his story with the time of Moses and the exodus from Egypt. He continued through the settling of the land under Joshua. He pointed to the period of the judges. He landed at Samuel the prophet and then came down to King David. And from David, Paul drew a direct line to Jesus Christ. And while that story was familiar to everyone in the synagogue when Paul delivered it, I'm not so sure that even in the church today, I'm not sure that that story is familiar enough. So let's go back. Because God wants us to connect today and what we celebrate today with God's ultimate story. The big story of human history. 
In the beginning, God created the universe. And he did it by his power. And he did it by his will. And he did it to display his glory. And everything that exists, exists for the glory of God. And of the things God created, human beings are the highest. Only human beings exist in the image of God. Only human beings exist and show this unique purpose that you, you walk, you, you, you live, you breathe, you relate, you worship, you eat, you drink, you sleep. You do all to display the glory of God. You come to God for grace for the glory of God. You face the wrath of God for the glory of God. Nothing else in the universe does that like us. Well, the people God created refused to attempt to walk in his glory and refused to live under his rule. They turned away from God in rebellion in the Garden of Eden. And the rebellion, the original sin of man in the Garden of Eden, brought into our world all the darkness, all the pain, all the misery, even death into our world. Look around. Think about anything in the world you don't like. I don't mean the food you don't like. Although, again, but I'm talking about the, the big things, the pain, the violence, the ugliness, the cruelty, the disease, the dementia. Every bit of that came into our world, the word of God says, because mankind fought against God. And God would have been well within his rights as creator to destroy his creation. God could have squashed Adam and Eve, and he could have begun again if he wanted to, and he would have been right. But God knew what Adam and Eve would do even before he created them. He didn't make them do it, but he knew what they would do. And God had already planned before he created what he would do. Instead of killing the first humans, God showed them mercy. And God made a promise. And God promised in Genesis 3.15 to send someone into the world who would crush the evil of the devil. And who would ultimately rescue all of God's children from their sin. And that promise of a savior, that promise of a rescuer to come is the sum and substance of the Old Testament. God chose a man, Abraham. To father a nation that would later be called Israel. That nation would carry the promise of the Savior to come. God continually promised that someone descended from Abraham through one particular line in his family tree would be the Savior who would bless the world. And eventually Israel, the nation that was Abraham's family, went down into Egypt and they remained there for over four centuries. They grew there from a small clan into a great nation. And this is where Paul begins the sermon. And as I said, all the people in the synagogue would have known this story. And when God led Israel up out of Egypt under the guidance of Moses, he was continuing to preserve his promise of a Savior to come. When God led Israel safely through the wilderness, when God did not kill them all, though they continually grumbled against him, God was keeping the promise alive. God was glorifying his name. 
When God gave Israel the promised land, he provided a place for the promise to be preserved. When God let Israel live through the dark and evil days of the judges, God was keeping the hope of the promise alive in a nation that did not deserve it. And when Israel tried to reject God as their king, to throw him off and demand a a human ruler, God kept the nation alive because he was preserving his promise to send a savior even while he continued to guard the glory of his own name. And then David became the king of Israel. And God made a new promise. A promise in keeping with his promise in the garden. And in keeping with his promise to Abraham. God said David's family, his kingly line, would produce the promised Savior. The Savior is going to be God's chosen king, as well as the one who crushes the devil and rescues God's people from their sins. And again, I say, everybody in the synagogue would have known this story. Then Paul skips over the remaining history of Israel. He doesn't talk about the division of the nation. He doesn't talk about the capture of the northern kingdom. He doesn't talk about the exile of the tribe of Judah. Nor does Paul talk about the return of the Jews to the land from Babylon. Or the rebuilding of the temple. Or the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. Or prophets like Isaiah. He skipped a lot. I don't know if that makes it a bad sermon or not. But all... All in the synagogue knew that part of the story too. They knew that they as a people were waiting and they were longing for God to rescue his people with the Savior who would come. Well, Paul, instead of filling in Israel's remaining history, he showed the direct family line from King David to Jesus the Christ. You know, Christ is not a name. Christ is a title. It means anointed one, chosen one, promised one. Paul tells us Jesus is the Savior God has promised. Well, think about how big a claim that is, folks. You hear that today and you say, well, of course. Think about how big a claim that is. All of human history, according to the Bible, has focused on the coming of that promised one, that Savior. Ever since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, God has said a Savior is on the way. From Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Moses, David, and all the prophets, God has been preserving that promise. That is the center of all that he's doing. Every story in the Old Testament is either telling us how God kept the promise alive or he's showing us how desperately we need a Savior. Every prophet in the Old Testament pointed the people of God to their need of a Savior and God's faithfulness to always keep his promises and that God would send the Savior into the world. And now Paul says, Paul says, all of history has been pointing at this. Guess what? It's happened. Look at verses 24 and 25. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I'm not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Paul leapt from the time of David, which was about a millennium, a thousand years or so, before the time that Paul stood in that synagogue. He leapt over that millennium to the time of John the Baptist. 
Many people in Israel understood that John was a prophet sent by God. Many knew that John had said he came to get the people ready to meet the Savior that God had promised. John, a man that most people thought of as a great man, said with absolute clarity that John himself, I'm not worthy even to tie or untie Jesus' shoes. Why? John told everybody Jesus is the Savior God has been promising since the Garden of Eden. Amen. In order to rightly celebrate this day, you must see that all of the Bible's story is about God promising a Savior. It's the history of humanity. All of human history leading up to the time of Jesus. It's about this one big promise. And all of the Old Testament story and all of the Old Testament prophets and John the Baptist and Paul say to us that Jesus, the Christ, is the Savior God promised. And listen, that knowledge, that knowledge is what you have to have in the back of your mind to see the significant, uh, significance of what comes next, which is our second point. Jesus died as Scripture predicted. Point number two, Jesus died as Scripture predicted. Look at verse 26 to 29. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterance of, utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. By opening this paragraph with that flowery phrase, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God. Can't you picture Paul just gesturing? And What's he telling you? He's telling you, I'm coming to the main point. All that history was introduction. All that promise was introduction. Here comes the point. What's the point? Paul says, I've gone over the history of Israel, and you know it. I've pointed to John the Baptist. You all respect him. We've all said Jesus is the promised Savior. Let me give you one more fact you all know, Paul says. One more thing. You know Jesus died. You know it. I don't care where these people of Antioch were in their minds. They knew Jesus had been killed. And Paul tells the people at the synagogue that they had been given the message of salvation. To us all has come the fulfillment of God's plan. How? How did it happen? First, Paul says the religious leaders of his day had become so blinded by their sin that they missed the fact that Jesus perfectly fulfilled prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. By the way, 
Could you imagine being the kind of person who could regularly read the Word of God, regularly dive into the Scriptures, and still have a heart dead and blinded to the things God commands? If that does not cause you to tremble and pray and say, God, please don't let that be me, it should. This is scary. Because people can hear the word over and over and over and over again and not respond. The Jewish religious leaders joined with the evil men of the government of that day and they together put Jesus to death. They had Jesus executed because they had become ignorant of the promise of God. They had become ignorant of the clearly written and spelled out plan of the Lord. But in their ignorance, the rulers of that day actually fulfilled the very prophecies of which they were ignorant. That is so God. You couldn't plan it that way. They didn't know it. But they did what God had promised all along they would do. There are a lot of Old Testament texts that promise the rule of the Savior. There's a lot of Old Testament texts that show us that God's promised one is going to restore many things. Turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. All the good stuff in Malachi. But there's one text in particular that talks about the strange, unbelievable plan that God had for rescuing his children one text of the Old Testament is stunningly clear that the Savior who will rescue God's people, he will personally die as a human physical sacrifice for their sins. There is a text that says the promised Savior will give up his life to shed his blood to pay for you. Do you know what text that is? We heard it this morning. Isaiah 53. Harold read for us, starting at verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs. Who? Who the he is the servant, the promised one from God, and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. What is that? That is sacrificial substitution. He was crushed for our iniquities. The penalty is there. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. Oh, we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And his first generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. What's that say? He's not going to marry. He's not going to have children. He's going to be killed. Realize how unfathomable that is? They're going to kill the one God promised. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. 
Isaiah saw the promise of God in a way that few people understood. The Savior to come is going to die as a sin offering, paying the price for the guilt of every single person God would rescue. Though he is personally innocent, the Savior will suffer, he will be killed, he will be put in a tomb. And you guys understand, don't you, that that's exactly what Jesus did? Jesus willingly allowed himself to be arrested, to be condemned, and to die on a cross. And in that death, Jesus took upon himself the punishment for God, from God, for every sin God would ever forgive. Jesus glorified God by displaying the love of God and the justice of God because God being just is to his glory. And God being merciful is to his glory. And God being loving is to his glory. And God being wrathful is to his glory because God created for his glory. And God displays his glory in all that he is and all that he does. And Jesus did it on the cross. Jesus died according to the promise of God to bring glory to God by rescuing the people of God. But Paul's sermon doesn't end here. I can't end here. If we end the story with Jesus in the grave, then we end the story with no salvation. Without a Savior. Without a fulfilled promise. So third point. Jesus rose from the grave as Scripture promised. Jesus rose from the grave as Scripture promised. 30 and 31. But God raised him from the dead. If you don't have that underlined or highlighted in your Bible, that would be a great line to have underlined or highlighted. And for many days he appeared to those who would come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. There are not two more beautiful words in all of Scripture than the words, but God. When the Bible paints for us the darkest, most hopeless picture of our lives, lost in sin, when the Bible says that there's this desperately sorrowful tale of the innocent Savior laid in a tomb, the Bible follows with, but God, but God did something, but God took action, but God would not leave things as they were, but God did the impossible, but God raised him from the dead. Jesus is alive. That's the claim. The claim is he died, but he didn't stay in the grave. And then he got up and he walked out and he spoke with many people, not just a few people. Many people saw Jesus after he died and came back to life. And those who saw the risen Lord Jesus, you know what happened? They became not his enemies, but his witnesses. They who had hidden themselves out of fear of the Romans. They were hiding. They were terrified. They were weeping. They were disappointed. They were hiding. They came forward and boldly proclaimed salvation in the name of the risen Lord Jesus. Those who had been too scared to stand by Jesus on Friday gave up their lives in order to tell the world Jesus is alive. 
Do you think, do you think that a man who had the ability to run and hide would come back out of the woodwork to tell people Jesus was alive, even if it cost him his life, just so he could spread a lie? Do you really think that's what they did? Terrified disciples became bold because they wanted to lie to the world? God forbid. That is illogical. That is foolish. And there is not one event in human history that you would read that way if you were judging it with fair historical eyes. Not one. And the only reason people try that here is because they have a natural bias against the supernatural. Acts 13, 32-37 says, And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, You will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. So here we got Paul highlighting the fact that the Old Testament tells us it already has words that testify to the fact, and we see it better on this side of the resurrection, they show us God had always planned all along that Jesus would not only die, but he would rise from the grave and be humanly, physically, literally alive again. What does he cite? If you want to write them down, you can look them up later. He cites Psalm 2, verse 7, Isaiah 55, verse 3, Psalm 16, verse 10. And all those verses talk about the life that the Savior would have that will never end. The word of God is clear that the body of the Savior, the one who would be slain to pay for our sins, would not decay in the grave. Paul even says, just in case you're curious, that wasn't about King David because David died and he decomposed. But the Savior, God promised, would die but not decompose. By the way, Paul could have just as easily cited the end of Isaiah 53, 10 through 12. It says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, we know this, Isaiah, we know this. He shall see his offspring. Remember before it said he would have no offspring? That he would be cut off? He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. How do you do that if you've been cut off? The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he he bore the sin of many. And he makes, present tense, intercession for the transgressors. See, after the Savior's sacrificial death was promised, the prophecy says, 
700 years before Jesus, the prophecy says that the one who would be cut off would have satisfaction and he would see his offspring. And that can't occur with a dead person who stays dead. No, dear friends, God has always known that his promised Savior would die as a sacrifice for sins and then he would come back to life fully conquering even the grave. His resurrection is the thing that shows his work is complete. His resurrection is the thing that shows that his claim to be able to save us is genuine. His resurrection is the thing that says that everyone who gets under his grace has eternal life. What we celebrate today is not the cross. Though I'm praising God for the cross. But what we celebrate is the resurrection. It's because of the fact that Jesus is alive that we can see that the cross actually purchased our pardon. It's because of the fact that Jesus is alive that we can have hope that we, though we die, will live forever with God in resurrection bodies. It is because of the fact that Jesus is alive. It is upon that truth that Christianity either stands or falls. Listen to me because I'm not stupid. Don't call me that. If Jesus is dead now, Christianity is useless. We have absolutely no reason to do any of the things that we do if Jesus is dead. But if Jesus is alive, listen to me. Like I said in our call to worship, I don't care. We can have all kinds of discussions about other arguments for the soundness or questionability of scripture or historical events or scientific discoveries or whatever you want to say. But listen to me. If Jesus is alive, He is God, He is the Lord, He is the Savior, He is the Promised One, He is our King. So the question is not one of all the other things that you could throw up as roadblocks to the faith. The question is this. We know Jesus lived. We know Jesus died. Nobody with an ounce of historical honesty denies either of those things. Hundreds of people said they saw him alive again. The word of God says he's alive again. If he's alive again, Christianity's true. If he's dead, it's false. Do you believe Jesus is alive. Fourth point. Respond to Jesus for life. Point four. Respond to Jesus for life. 38 to 43. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers. Be astounded and perish, for I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. 
as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Here's the close of the sermon. And the sermon closes with an invitation and a warning. By the way, I I pray that you know that our sermons always close that way too. Invitation and warning. To the one who will come to Jesus in faith, Paul offers the forgiveness of God because Jesus is the one God promised. Because Jesus died to pay for the sins of God's children. Because Jesus rose from the grave. Because Jesus is alive even today, 2,000 years later. There is mercy from God for you. Those who will surrender to Jesus and entrust their souls to his care will find forgiveness from God. It's a forgiveness you could never achieve by obeying rules. It's a forgiveness you could never gain by religious activity or obedience to regulations or giving all of your possessions away to the poor. But Paul also includes a warning. He cites Habakkuk. Chapter 1, verse 5, is a reminder that this message is difficult to imagine, hard to fathom, but it's true. There is salvation for those who come to Jesus in faith. That's true. But for those who reject the offer of salvation in Christ, the Bible says there is only the judgment of God. And Paul says, beware, watch out. He says, don't hear this and fail to believe. Don't hear this and fail to believe and face the wrath of God. And after the message, some people scoffed. And others believed in Christ and found salvation. By the way, after my message today, some of you will scoff. And some of you will believe in Christ for salvation. But truthfully, friends... Our concern today, our primary concern today, is not about what they did. My question is for you. Have you come to Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus, in faith for life? Here's the good news. People like you and me can be forgiven. We have to be willing to renounce our sin, turn away from controlling our own lives, And we have to be willing to submit to Jesus. We have to come to him in faith, believing that he died to pay the penalty for our sins and that he rose from the grave, never ever to die again. If you turn from sin and trust in Jesus, God promises you salvation, forgiveness, and life forever with him. Christians, do you agree that that's true? Would you not, dear Christian friends, urge anyone who does not believe to find that salvation today? But if we reject that offer, if you refuse to believe Jesus is alive, because that's really what it boils down to, is Jesus alive or is he not? If you refuse to surrender yourself to him, you're turning your back on God. At that point, you have said to the Lord, you are unwilling to have Jesus pay pay for your sins. At that point, you are saying to God, I would prefer to face your judgment on my own. To do that leads to destruction. 
do it. So believe in the Lord Jesus. All of the Bible points to Jesus promising what he would do. He died on the cross and that death is sufficient to pay for your wrongs. He rose from the grave and can give you life too. Life that lasts forever. Believe in Jesus before it's too late. And if you've already placed your trust in the Savior, if you've already trusted Jesus, praise him today. Praise him today. Praise him for living a perfect life. Praise him for dying for your sins. Praise him for rising from the grave and defeating death. You couldn't do that on your own. Praise him for conquering death. Praise him. And continue to yield all that you have, to give all that you are to him and to his glory. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I believe you are the Son of God. Lord Jesus, I believe you came to this earth to die on a cross to pay the price for the sins of all who will believe. Lord Jesus, I believe that you rose from the grave because your work was complete and your sacrifice was acceptable to the Father. Lord Jesus, I believe that every single person who will turn from sin and put their trust in you will be saved. Lord Jesus, I yield myself to you. I don't understand everything you are. I don't understand everything you've done. I don't understand how you do things, and I shouldn't expect to. I'm a sinner. You're perfect. But Lord, I yield my life to you. For all here who don't know you, I pray that you would have saving mercy on them. For all here who do, I pray you will help us worship you and live for your glory this day. It's in Christ's holy name that we pray.